I should say, over the last few weeks, what we've been doing, Noah. Uh, I know we've had a lot of themes with water in them. Um, the sinners outpoured bit is just a coincidence uh, in terms of the water. Uh, just so that you know. But uh, we haven't got much water in our passage today, have we? Because we've come uh, to them getting off the ark. And I want to start off the, the evening with a question. How do you convince people that what you're saying is true? How do you convince people that what you're saying is true? I remember when I was at school, uh, it, there was only certain things that you could do, really, that would make it uh, so that you could uh, so that you could uh, speak. Well, this is going to be interesting because my talk's not on my iPad. Uh, <laughs> um, there's only certain things you can do to convince people uh, that what you're saying is the truth, isn't there? So when I was at school. Uh, we uh, used to have the, the, the saying, you could only really say that, you know, I, I swear on my mother's life that this is true. That was the only thing people would really accept as a, a definite thing, that you were uh, telling the truth. Uh, but there's other ways, aren't there, that you can convince people that you're telling the truth. You can say uh, that uh, you, you could sign a contract, you could make an oath. You can do all sorts of different things uh, to show that what you're saying is the truth. And what we've got in front of us here uh, is God showing to Noah that he is telling the truth as he speaks these words to Noah. And uh, we're going to see things about God's character that mean that we know that God is telling the truth, that we know that God is keeping his promises. So our first heading this evening is God the faithful. God the faithful. And we're going to look at uh, chapter 8, verses 20 uh, to 22. So I'll just read them to us again. Then Noah built an ark, uh, sorry, an altar to the Lord. And took some of every uh, clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So here we see the faithful God. We see the God uh, who is faithful to his people. Noah's come off the ark. He's protected them the whole time that they've been here. And now Noah makes a sacrifice to the Lord. He makes it of every clean animal uh, and clean bird. That's a good thing because there's only two of the other ones. So if he kills one of them, they're, they're in big trouble. But we see here that God is propitiated. That's a bit of a long word. Uh, but God is, is calmed down, if you want it sort of in human terms, by this sacrifice. Even after all the flood, even after all the, the carnage that we've seen, there's still a requirement here for a sacrifice before God is propitiated, before he is calmed down. But God is faithful, isn't he, here? We see him uh, being faithful to his word. We see him being faithful in the sense that he does what he says. Uh, he would do. So elsewhere in scripture we read that when these sacrifices are made, he will be calmed down, he will be propitiated. So God is faithful, he, he allows this sacrifice to work, if you like, because there's no way that just a few burnt animals uh, can really pay for sin, is there? But here God allows that to happen. Even the flood hasn't managed to do that, has it? But God, the faithful God, allows it to happen. So we see his faithfulness in the way that he, he does what you'd expect him to do throughout the rest of scripture. But we also see his faithfulness uh, in the way that he is faithful despite our unfaithfulness. 
So did you notice there that you've got the uh, the ground being uh, cursed? And he gives the reason that uh, the ground not being cursed. Sorry, he gives the reason uh, that he's going to do it. He said, "I will never again curse the ground." Partway part through verse twenty-one, "I'll never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth." Now, I wonder if that rings any bells uh, for those who've been here for the the Genesis series. When he says that uh, he won't do it, even though the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, it sounds very, very similar to what God said before the flood, doesn't it? So if you flip uh, back over uh, to chapter 6 and um, verse 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Well, that was before the flood, and now this is after the flood. So one of the things that doesn't change, even though the world has been turned upside down, even though all the animals have gone, uh, and all the mankind has gone mostly, actually the problem is still there. Because the problem is in their hearts. It's a bit like, um, I don't know if you have uh, backup memory sticks for your computer. You know, the sort of recovery drives and backup things you can get, and you plug them in. And uh, they uh, can help you if your computer gets a virus. You can reboot your computer, you can restart it, reformat it, plug your disk in, off you go. But imagine the nightmare situation that actually, if you uh, plug in your boot drive, if you plug in your recovery disk, only to discover that that's actually got the virus on as well. And when you reload everything, it's still got the virus, it's still going. Well, this is really what we're seeing with the flood here. We'll see it more next week. But what we see here is that the virus is still there. Because the virus was actually in the heart. That's the problem, wasn't it? The thoughts of his heart, the intention of his heart was only evil all the time. So even though God has done all this wiping out of different people, all this wiping out of all the animals, actually it's not solved the problem. Because the problem was in the hearts. It's stowed away, if you like, on the ark, a bit like it's stowed away on the memory drive. But God still makes these promises that we see. He says, despite the fact that your heart is evil, actually, I'm still going to make these promises to you. I'm still not going to flood the world again. So God is faithful. He's the faithful God, despite our unfaithfulness. And don't we know that as the experience in our own lives, that we are so unfaithful to God so often, and yet God is so faithful to us. So this is it despite our unfaithfulness. And he passes on his faithfulness to creation. Do you see that there uh, in verse 22? <coughs> While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. What he's saying there is that actually this reliable God, this faithful God, is passing on his faithfulness to creation. Now we don't know what it was like before the flood. We don't know if there was erratic seasons or uh, it wasn't predictably cold or hot. We just don't know. But here God is promising that it will be now. His faithfulness is being passed on to creation. So when we have harvests, when we have good summers, when we have nice winters with snowballs or whatever, actually it's not Mother Nature that we've got to thank. It's Father God we've got to thank uh, for creation, for those uh, wonderful seasons that we have. When we we see the wonderful colours in autumn, all those wonderful things. Actually God is promising here, he's promising to keep the world going. The sort of posh theological term for it is, is common grace. He's promising us that the sun will rise on the wicked uh, and the, the righteous alike. 
God is promising this faithfulness to creation by making it reliable, making it so that we can plan, so that we can have harvest, we can have food and all those things that we enjoy. So it's a reason to give thanks to God. But it's despite our unfaithfulness. It's only because of his faithfulness. So that's the the first thing we see, God the faithful. And then secondly, we see God the just, verses nine, uh, sorry, chapter nine, verses one to seven. I'll read them to us again. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every morning, uh, sorry, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by, the, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. What we see in this section is what we've been seeing all the way through the the Noah narrative. We're seeing here that it's a repeat, really, of the beginning of Genesis. It's like a fresh start uh, with Noah being the new Adam. And we see that really clearly here because actually Noah is given really similar commands to what Adam and Eve are given in the garden. So on the back of your notice sheet, you'll see there there's Genesis 1, 28 and 29. See if it sounds familiar in line with what we just read. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit you shall have them for food. So do you see there that the commands are are repeated, aren't they? So you get the be fruitful and multiply. That's there both for Adam and for Noah. You get the um, subduing the the earth, the having dominion over the animals. Uh, There we see that there's a sort of similarity between two. There there is a difference we'll pick out in a moment, but there's this idea of control over the animals. You see there as well, he tells uh, Adam what he can eat. He tells Noah what he can eat. Uh, he also, uh, uh, elsewhere in this, uh, gives him a rule, doesn't he? So with Adam and Eve, it was not to eat the fruit of the tree. And here there's a rule uh, about what to do with murder. So it's a, it's a repeat. It's like a new style. It's, it's deliberately reminding us of the early chapters of Genesis. Even the order is the same. What's different is this is a bit of a macabre version, a bit of a, uh, I'm trying to think of a better word for that, but something that's quite dark. Really, it's a dark version of that early uh, set of commands. So the fruitful and multiply is the same. But instead of it being dominion over the animals, it's fear and dread. Do you see that in verse 2? The fear of you and the dread of you will be upon every beast of the earth. It's a bit stronger than dominion, isn't it? Dominion was what God had over man. It was that control, that, that rule for their good. But here it's that the, the animals are scared of human beings. I know when I was little, oh, I still am scared of wasps, uh, but uh, my mum always used to say to me, oh, well, it's more scared of you than you are of it. 
Now, I'm not convinced that's true with wasps. Uh, I, I think I'm, I'm far more scared of wasps than they are of me. But in, in general, that's quite true, isn't it, with man and the animal world. Uh, they are more scared of us than we are of them. And that's partly because of this here. Actually, man is the most deadly creature on the planet. I don't have the statistics, unfortunately, uh, but it works out something like we kill um, about half a million of each other every year, just in terms of murdering people. If you take into account things like road accidents and, and things like that, the total goes up to, I think it's over one and a half million deaths every year, just from man. And that's just what we do to each other. So imagine what it must be like for an animal if you see a man. You must be pretty scared. Because actually we're, we're the most dangerous creature on the planet, even more than rhinos, which come uh, after... Uh, rhinos, sorry, hippopotamuses uh, that come after us, or mosquitoes, if you want to be really uh, nitpicky. We're the most... <laughs> or, no, 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 mosquito picky. Um, but we are the most dangerous animals on the planet. But here we see that God is saying that the animals will be scared of you. It's not that we're going to have a kind dominion over them. So that's a bit darker than it was at the beginning of Genesis. Also, think about what God gives them to eat. So back in the garden, it was uh, every plant yielding seed. It was, it was fruit. Uh, it was vegetables. But here, God gives them flesh to eat. He gives them animals to eat. No wonder the animals are going to be scared of us if we're now eating them. But do you see how that's a bit darker? This is going to involve death now with eating. Now, it doesn't tell us whether this was the case before, whether man uh, in the thousands of years that went before did eat animals. I'm, my guess would be that they, they did, but they weren't given permission to until this point. But God is now saying, right, okay, you can eat uh, animals. But he does give a, 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 a caveat in there, doesn't he? So verse 4, But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. In scripture, all the way through, blood is given a special place. And the reason for that, if you think about this morning, is actually where does that find its fulfilment? Well, it finds it in the blood of Christ. All the way through scripture, blood is something special. Blood involves life. And here, even here with Noah, they're to treat it specially. They're not to eat food uh, with blood in it. But it's because that's going to be something significant as we go through the word. I don't think this applies anymore because actually in Mark's gospel, Jesus uh, talks about what comes out of your mouth makes you unclean rather than what goes in. So I think we are okay to eat black pudding and, and all those other things, if you want to. Um, but here it's, it's just showing us that there's something special about blood. Uh, and that's going to carry on through scripture. But in general, they're going to be able to eat uh, the animals. But that's a bit darker uh, than it was before. And then here as well, we see that actually the rule is very much darker than it was before. So if you remember with Adam and Eve, what was their rule? Well, they, they couldn't eat one uh, sort of fruit from a certain tree. What's the rule here? Well, it's to do with the taking of life, isn't it? It's to do with murder. So verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Again, it's making man in his own image is a reminder of the early chapters of Genesis. But the rule here is not to do with fruit, it's to do with blood. It's to do with the taking of life. So if you think about the picture this is giving us of this new world that Noah is going into, it, it seems like a repeat in one sense. But on the other hand, well, there's going to be murder in it. There's going to be eating of animals and death and flesh. Uh, there's going to be all sorts of, of, of darker things in it. So it sort of is a repeat and it's sort of not. 
And interestingly, in verse 6, it's actually talking about what to do in response to someone being killed. So again, verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now, I don't think this is mandating, as in forcing you to have the death penalty, which some people read this as, you know, if, if someone is killed, you must kill them. What it does introduce is this idea of justice. That's why we've entitled this section, God the Just. God is saying there must be justice in this world. It's not going to be swept under the carpet. Actually, it matters if you kill somebody. It matters if you murder somebody. Why? Okay, end part of verse 6. From God made man in his own image. That's the reason that's given why this is so serious. God cares about his own image, not in the sort of PR sense, you know, he cares about <laughs> how people see him. Though in one sense, when he talks about his name in scripture, that is that sort of idea. But here it's more the idea that actually he cares about man because man is made in his image. When somebody kills a man, it's as though you're killing the image of God, if you like. There's a sanctity to life that's given by being in God's image that God gives to us. Whether we're black or white, whether we're old or young, whether we're gay or straight, whether we're born or unborn, actually all of us, whatever uh, our colour or any of those things, have an intrinsic value to God, have an intrinsic uh, sanctity because we're made in God's image. That's what it's saying here. There's not two classes of human beings in that sense. All All human beings are made in the image of God. Now, obviously, with the gospel, we know that we are being remade into the image of God. We're, we're getting close to God in our character. But that's something slightly different to what it's talking about here. So should we have the death penalty from this? Well, I, I don't think that you have to. I don't personally support it. But it's saying that there should be justice. It's saying that there should be retribution. Through the rest of the Old Testament, it's going to be through families. But even in that, God allows mercy He creates cities of refuge where you can go and escape if you've killed someone accidentally. So God is still showing mercy, even in the midst of all this uh, justice and judgment that he's talking about. So this is a new world uh, that he's talking about, but it's a darker world. But it's a world where God still wants justice. He still wants justice to be done. And we should care about that too. Now, if you think about the original readers, what would they be making of this? We've, We've made a lot of this during the Noah series. The original readers were the Israelites in the wilderness, uh, out of Egypt, but not into the promised land. And this was really important for them to see, this element of justice. Because think about what they were being asked to do in the wilderness. They were going to take the promised land. They were going to go into the land of Canaan. What were they going to be doing? Well, they were going to be killing the Canaanites, weren't they? They were going to be wiping out the Hittites and the Amorites, all those different people. They were going to be shedding blood. Now, I don't think... Uh, some people say, you know, if you go back in time, it's more brutal. And there's a sort of element to that, you know, we don't kill our own food anymore. We don't, we're not used to death. But I don't think it would have been any, any more palatable to the Israelites, the idea of going into the country uh, and killing all these people. But here do you see that God is actually setting in place this idea that if, if this happens, it's to do with justice. And that's really what God is doing with the Canaanites. If you read the accounts carefully, God is saying, look, these people have been given their time. Uh, They have not repented. They've not turned. And now I'm going to send a nation against them. 
in judgment, in justice. Whoever sheds the blood of man by the hand of man shall his blood be shed. And that's what God is doing. He's sending people in, men in to go and take this land. So the Israelites, I think, were supposed to understand this, that this would be justice. God would not ask them to do this if it weren't. Because even the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, they were made in God's image. So this was to help them understand a bit about what was going on as they were to press on into the promised land. So that's God, the just. And then finally, we have God, the covenant keeper. God, the covenant keeper. Uh, Chapter 9, verses 8 to 18. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you, and every living creature um, that is with you, for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and my bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah went forth from the ark, were Shem, Ham and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these people, uh, from these, the people, the whole earth were dispersed. So God, the covenant keeper. This really is the first mention of the word covenant uh, in the Bible. There's a mention of it that he's going to make it to Noah. But this is really the the bulk of uh, the covenant. Some people think there's a covenant with Adam, but it's just not termed that way. But here we have this word covenant that he makes with Noah. What's a covenant? Well, it's a bit like a a contract or or a deal. But sometimes it can be one-sided. So if a king invaded a country... He could make a covenant. He could say, right, this is how I'm going to treat you. And it would be one-sided, sort of saying, this is what we're going to do. This is what I'm going to do. And the covenant here is in that style. It's God dictating, this is what I'm going to do. There's no sort of comeback of what they're to do. It's all about what God is going to do. So what does God promise in this covenant? Well, he promises that he's never again going to cut off uh, all flesh by the waters of a flood. God is promising that there won't be a repeat uh, of this global flood. Now it's not therefore saying that there won't be local floods. So the bridge in Otley can still close. That's okay. Um, but it won't be a, a global one. It won't be to wipe out everything by a flood. Now that's encouraging. You think that's, that's wonderful. Yes. Not, God's not going to wipe out the world by a flood. But... On the other hand, elsewhere in scripture, it tells us that that's not the end of the story. So on the back of your notice sheet, you'll see 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 to 7. 
So it says, for they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through the water of the word, and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by that same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So there's a sort of positive to it. God is not going to flood the world. But it's not saying that he's not going to destroy the world again. In fact, God promises elsewhere that he will. But here he's promising, look, I'm not going to send another flood. Uh, I'm not going to to flood the world. So when next time you see the rain pouring, uh, which is quite often, isn't it, let's face it, in, in Yorkshire, um, you don't need to worry about a flood. That's what he's saying, well, about a global flood anyway, because I'm not going to do it again. There's not going to be a repeat. But what does he do to, to show them that uh, he's definitely not going to do this? Well, we see that there in uh, verse 12. Uh, sorry, uh, verse 13. I've set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So God here institutes the rainbow uh, as a sign that he won't flood the world again. Now, it doesn't say rainbow. Did you notice that? It just says I've set my bow uh, in the sky uh, or bow in the clouds. And it is the normal word for bow, as in bow and arrow. That's the Hebrew word for rainbow. They don't have a special term for it. But it seems the picture is here of God sort of hanging his bow in the sky. I've set my bow in the clouds. It's all saying, right, I'm hanging up my weapons. I'm not going to be against you in this way again. I'm not going to send another flood. So it's almost, somebody commented that that would actually mean if there was an arrow, it would be pointing up into the sky, not down to the earth. Now, I don't think it's saying there was never any rainbows before this happened. Uh, of course, every time it rains and there's some sun, if you look at it from one angle, there's always a rainbow. But what it's saying here is that this now takes on that meaning. And God did set up physics in the first place to make it all work anyway. So I think he knew what he was doing. But he's saying, look, I've set this in the sky. This is going to be the sign of this covenant. So what is he doing with the, the rainbow? Well, he's... It's not something for us to remember, okay? So have a look at verse three, uh, verse 15, sorry. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. Most of the time when we read about the rainbow and the sign of the covenant, we think that it's there for us to remember. So, you know, you see a rainbow, remember God is love, remember God is uh, there to rescue. But actually, if you read this, it doesn't talk about us remembering it. It talks about God remembering it. This is actually God's sign for himself. Every time God sees a rainbow, if you like, um, he remembers that he's not going to flood the world again. Now you think about across the world, how many, how often must it rain uh, through the day? How often must there be sunlight? Like I said, there's virtually always a rainbow somewhere if you can view it from the right angle. God is saying that my promise is so sure, as, as long as there are rainbows in the sky, I'm not going to go back on this promise. As long as the laws of physics keep going, uh, with the, the way that light refracts through the, the, the drops of rain, I'm going to keep my promise. That's what he's saying. As long as there are still stars in the sky, as long as there's still a sky there, you don't need to doubt God's promise. That's what he's saying there. And that's really important for the original readers. Think about that. Noah got given a covenant, but actually the original readers, the Israelites in the wilderness, they were given a covenant. 
And it could have been tempted to think, well, will God really keep his word? Will God really keep his covenant? Will he really do what he said? Will he really take us into the promised land? Will he really give us that land? Well, this is here to show them, yes, God keeps his promises. God is a covenant keeper. God will do what he says. And the same is true for us, isn't it? We have been given a covenant, the new covenant. It promises us that if we put our trust in Jesus, we'll have our sins forgiven. It promises us uh, that we'll be assured of a place in heaven, in the new creation. And sometimes it can be it can be easy to doubt those things, can't it? We don't say it out loud often. But when we think, well, I've done something really terrible. Can, can I really be part of God's people? Can God really forgive me of that? When we think, well, I know that the new creation's coming and, and that we can live there with God, but the world now just seems so attractive. I, I'll just put all my energies into that. And it's sort of doubting, really, that that's real, that that's coming ahead, that God will really do it. But here we see that God is a covenant keeper. He does keep his promises. We are thousands of years on. There has not been another global flood, nor will there be, because God is a promise keeper. He's his covenant keeper. As long as the laws of physics stand, as long as the rainbow stands, we can remember that God keeps his promises. That's what we should be thinking when we see a rainbow. So trust in God's promises. Don't let them go. Hold on to them. Believe them. Because they don't depend on us and how we're doing. They depend on God and how he's doing, what he can see, what he remembers. And he's much bigger than us, isn't he? So be encouraged and believe in God 